And will you now open your Bibles to our sermon text, which today comes again from Deuteronomy chapter 5. Today we'll consider the sixth commandment found in verse 17. Deuteronomy 5, verse 17. Following that, will you turn for further elaboration to the Gospel of John, the fifth chapter, and I'll read the first 29 verses of John chapter 5. Our sermon text, however, from Deuteronomy 5.17 is very simply, very clearly, very authoritatively. You shall not murder. John chapter 5. After these things... There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons, into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was a Sabbath on that day, so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. 
because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Amen. God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you once again with grateful hearts, for you are the God of life, You speak, and the world was and is. We pray, O Lord, that you would guide us into all truth by your Holy Spirit as we spend this time now in your word. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. When our study of Deuteronomy first brought us to the Ten Commandments several weeks ago. You may remember we slowed down our pace to very tiny steps and then to a crawl and now that we're in the middle of them we've throttled back to what must seem like we are standing still in the water. A dead stop. The sixth, seventh, and eighth commandments, as they appear first in Exodus and as the sixth one of them appears here in Deuteronomy, these verses are in a four way tie for the shortest verse in the Hebrew Bible. Each of these three commandments consists 
of two very simple Hebrew words totaling only six Hebrew letters per commandment. In fact, the only thing that makes the seventh and eighth commandments slightly longer than the sixth here in Deuteronomy is that here, as he preaches to a new generation, Moses connects them all together with a single little letter, that letter Vav I mentioned before, that means and. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal. So the Ten Commandments are very clearly a tight, compact unit As an ethical standard, as a rule for living, they all hang together. So if you keep them, they're kept. If you violate any of them, the whole law has been broken. Now why is it worth pointing out how extremely brief these commandments of the second table of the law are? Well. If you compare them, for instance, to the volumes of canon law of the Roman Catholic Church, or if you compare them to virtually any bill that becomes law in the civil legislators of our own land, you discover that in God's eyes, in God's eyes, the life that we live together as neighbors within the kingdom of God That life is meant to be a wonderfully uncomplicated affair. Kingdom living under God's sovereign grace in the good land that he gives us. It's simple. It's sweet. And it's as streamlined as it could possibly be. As we've noticed before, all the rest of God's law stretching from Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy, holy and righteous and good as every word of it is, all of it simply provides case law application and expansion of these ten very simple, straightforward commandments. As the Shorter Catechism teaches us, these ten commandments are where God's whole moral law for us is summarily comprehended. It's summarily comprehended. So you want to talk about human morality or you want to talk about human ethics, you want to talk about what the right thing is to do in any given situation, then human opinion isn't the place to start. Internet blogs aren't the place to start. Even the standards of our parents or of our grandparents or of the strictest Victorian generation aren't the place to start. As these standards, these standards are all open to debate. The place to start any discussion of human morality, 
and the compass to guide us through the whole discussion, beginning to end, is this law. Spoken first from the mouth of the living God at Mount Sinai. Another thing I should mention is uh, about these commandments. I've mentioned it before, but some people are so put off by the negative phrasing of the commandments that it's worth another word of emphasis. God is king, but is a king who sets his people free to serve him. He breaks our bonds. He breaks our shackles. He doesn't put us in new ones at least not any that you'd recognize as shackles, because to those redeemed by grace, all of this feels like a pretty light and easy burden. The negative phrasing of this sixth commandment and so many others is in fact a tacit indicator of the amazing liberty that's ours within the kingdom of God. This is about liberty. He's not saying you have to do anything difficult or complex to enjoy his favor. It's not difficult not to murder someone. Holiness isn't principally about personal giftedness or personal initiative or personal drive to achieve. This sixth commandment, affirming life, it doesn't say that you have to find a cure for cancer or eat only what's good for you. It doesn't say you have to run five miles a day for your health. The commandments aren't burdensome that way. They don't require of you anything that you might not have the wherewithal to do. The blessed truth about the negative is this. If you simply abstain from something, in this case, murder, then you've kept the commandment. See how easy it is. But there, of course, is the rub. That's what got these Pharisees into so much trouble, isn't it? It did back in the New Testament times, and it does today. Sadly, For all of us. Murder has these long, sticky, intrusive, unpredictable tentacles. Murder has these tentacles that reach into places that you don't necessarily expect it to reach. It reaches the secret places of the heart. That's where murder begins. When these Jews of John chapter 5, men who know very well that Jesus has just made the sick man of Bethesda well, why do they now persecute Jesus? Verse 16. Why is it that they even seek to kill him? Verse 18. Why are these people so radically out of step with the completely good and gracious act of healing a poor man who's been desperately sick for 38 years? 
if they'd have seen the power and compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ toward this sick man, and if they had then simply done nothing, if they'd simply kept their mouth shut, they'd have done well. If they'd actually then rejoiced with the man in the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, they'd have done far better. But their reaction to the situation, of course, is far, far worse. That's the way it is with natural-born sinners. Unregenerate sinners, no matter how religious they may be. Here we have an act of sheer divine power and grace invested in another man, and it puts murder into the hearts of these men looking on. It's because ever since the fall of Adam into sin, the human heart, apart from redeeming grace, is so completely, utterly 180 degrees out of step with the gloriously outreaching, saving, restorative purposes of God. God wills to restore this man. God wills to give his life back to him. But in view of the moral depravity we've inherited, this despicable, depraved nature that still haunts the children of men, even religious people, like those we read of in John chapter 5, even religious people can somehow be singing a completely different tune. And it's not very pretty. In view of his grace, God would have us singing, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. But the whole tone of the sinner's life and relationships, apart from Christ, too often sounds more like the song, I don't get no satisfaction. Listen, friends, the Father has life in himself. Even so, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And there was a time long ago when within Adam's soul there resonated a hearty agreement with that. An agreement with life, a concurrence with life. Back at the very beginning of things, God, you remember, had said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Live life to the full. Promote life. Engender life. Human life. That's what the cultural mandate was all about. Live life. Live it as fruitfully, as fully and as healthfully and as expansively as human life can be lived. Bring new life into the world. Feed it, nurture it, guard it, love it. One measure of the radical nature of our first parents fall into sin is that of the first two children born into the world in fulfillment of the cultural mandate, the one rose up to kill the other. 
first generation of humanity. Another measure of that fall is that all these hundreds of generations later, we still can't keep ourselves on what should be the very easy path of simple obedience. And it doesn't get any simpler than this sixth commandment. Don't murder. But human perversity, of course, apart from saving grace, is such that we simply must find some way to mess life up. We simply must find some way to make life painful, hard, and short. Either our own lives or the lives of someone else. It's the way sinners are. You remember back when you used to scan the sidewalk ahead of you for ants and other bugs that you could step on? I do. I remember those days. Stepping on perfectly harmless bugs was one of the things I would do when I was a little boy. I had friends who would actually capture butterflies so they could tear off their wings. It's malicious nonsense. There's no reason for it. But unregenerate sinners simply must find some outlook for the twistedness of our sin. For those of you who may be taking notes, let me organize my points about protecting and promoting life human life in particular, into these four observations on the sixth commandment. First of all, to protect and promote life is to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. To protect and promote life is to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, of course, that's true across the board, across all the commandments. To keep them by the might and power of the Holy Spirit is to be like him. Christ loved the whole law and he kept it with all his heart. We redeemed sinners love the law, not strictly because of what it does for us. In fact, what the law does for us as sinners, truth be told, What the law does for us is to condemn and kill us. It shows angry, resentful men our desperate need of a redeemer. Now we find the grace to love this law, even though it testifies against us. We find the grace to love it simply because in it we can begin to see the sweet outlines of our Savior's life. And ministry. In its every little detail, we're able to make out his initial certification of completion. So that finally, on the very last afternoon of his earthly ministry, he was able to say from the cross, to say of the whole law, Tetelestai. It 
has been finished. But that's not the whole glory of it. The rest of the story, the part in which we participate, is that now united to him by grace through faith, we too begin to walk in the newness of his resurrection life. And the Christian discovers something amazing about himself. Gone, somehow, is the old, unreachable heart of stone. Gone is all that chasing after butterflies and ants and bugs and people so that we could squash them. So we could rip off their wings. And you begin to discover that all of that anger, that ill will, all the hard words that once came so naturally to the old man, don't come so naturally to the new man. Those things just can't somehow find a comfortable home within this new heart of flesh that beats within your breast. This new heart finds a way even to love our enemies, even to pray for those who persecute us. Even while they're persecuting us. even while they're killing us. It renders us more like Jesus, in whom is life. Second, just as life is Christ's alone to give, it's also his alone to take away. Just as it's Christ's to give life, it's his to take away. There is a little bit of intergenerational so-called humor. You may have heard a frazzled mom telling her stubborn, recalcitrant child, listen, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. It's dark humor, really, when you think of it. Dark humor. And strictly speaking, of course, neither of those assertions is true. It's not within the power of a Sarah or a Rebecca or a Hannah or an Elizabeth or really anyone to bring one human life into this world. It is simply not ours to do. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is his reward. John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, puts the central matter of where human life comes from very plainly. All things came into being through him, him being the Word or Christ. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The same ideas are echoed in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And of course, they're the unified testimony of Scripture on the subject. Life is his alone to give. And it's also his alone to take back.
at the right time to take it back. He does this directly as life runs its course all the way to the end. But as the sovereign giver of life, he also retains the sovereign right to take it judicially, using the courts of law, using the sword of civil government. He prescribes capital punishment as the only lawful way to proceed in certain specified cases allowing ransom or a fine and other less serious offenses. In his Institutes of Biblical Law, Dr. Rush Dooney identifies 18 separate crimes for which God's law commanded the death penalty as the only way to uphold the honor of God among his people. I should certainly also point out that God allows and expects the taking of life in the very narrow, restricted situation of a just war. Now, I'm sure I hardly even need to point out that over the last 247 years of our own nation's existence, this caveat to the Sixth Commandment does not and cannot apply to every congressionally declared war that comes along to satisfy the Congress or the chief executive, much less the undeclared ones. Just wars, by and large, aren't interventionist wars. They're not imperialist wars. Just wars tend not to be wars way over there, Just wars certainly aren't the persistent conflict that we've come to know over most of my lifetime. The grim and expensive business of politics as usual. Just wars are those that defend God's heritage. That defend such sacred gifts as your home, your family, And here the Founding Fathers got it exactly right, such unalienable rights endowed by our Creator as life, liberty, property. Just wars honor the boundaries that he's providentially established between the peoples and nations of history. So, just as it's God's prerogative alone to give life, it's also his prerogative alone to take life away, and to define the terms under which men, in an official capacity, might, as his agents, participate in the taking of human life. Third, and pastorally, I should remind you that in both the giving and the taking of life, God does all things well, both in the giving of life and the taking of life. God does all things well. What peace of mind there is to be found in this solid old stock of biblical Christianity called Calvinism. 
Our sovereign God and King does all things well. When the world goes homicidally crazy, suicidally crazy, as ours certainly has, we need to be able to comfort one another in the gospel and by the gospel. We need each other to strengthen one another's hands. 